Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to this podcast know that uh, we've begun these Ministry Watch extra episodes uh, that feature editorial partners such as World Magazine. We have Michael Renault on with us today. And I'll get to Michael in just a minute, but I also want to remind you that we continue to do our Friday weekly roundups of the news. Uh, that's a, an episode that I do with Natasha Smith. These Ministry Watch Extra episodes, though, are a chance for us to go deep, you might say, with our editorial partners. And as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, Michael Renault is our guest today. Uh, he's the editor of World Magazine. He comes to World after a successful tenure as an award-winning editor at the Greenville Sun, a daily newspaper in East Tennessee. Michael, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Warren. Happy New Year. Yeah, thank you. Happy New Year uh, to you as well. It seems like uh, the last time we spoke in early December was about a million years ago. It's hard to imagine that it was just barely a month ago. And, uh, you know, it's also kind of hard to imagine um, the way the news cycle has broken over the last month. You know, Christmas and New Year's break, they're usually kind of slow for news unless something, you know, unusual happens like a tsunami or an earthquake. Uh, we, we usually end up filling our pages or our airways, as it were, with a lot of year-end stuff, best of lists and that sort of thing. But that was definitely not the case this year. Congress met through the break. COVID, of course, continued to uh, create daily crises and headlines. The drama over the presidential election continued. The campaigns in Georgia for the Senate runoffs um, uh, barely took off even a few hours for Christmas Day. Uh, given all of that, it's kind of hard to know where to start. So I, I think I'll come in through a side door, if you'll allow me, Michael. Uh, uh, one of World's reporters, Steve West, did a story that caught my eye. It's the story of a Supreme Court case called Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. I want to start there because Steve wrote that it is one of the most significant religious liberty cases for a Supreme Court decision in 2021. What can you tell us about that case? Yeah, Warren. Well, the justices heard arguments in that case in early November. It was actually right after the November 3rd election. Um, and it's a case that involves the city of Philadelphia's decision made in 2018 to stop placing kids through Catholic social services after a nearly century-long partnership with that agency. Um, the city ended that foster care contract because the agency's Catholic beliefs prevented it from placing children with unmarried persons or with same-sex couples. Philadelphia said the policy violated its non-discrimination ordinance, but no same-sex couples have actually applied uh, for foster care through the agency. And that's something in particular that when arguments were going on in November, Warren, that several Supreme Court justices uh, took note of as they were asking questions of the attorneys. Yeah, you know, Michael, this um, case gets complicated pretty fast. I want to don't want to get too deeply into the weeds, but uh, can you tell us why this case is so important? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons is that the attorneys arguing on behalf of the, the Catholic uh, foster care agency are asking the court actually to revisit a, a decision from 1990 in a case called Employment Division v. Smith. And in that decision, the Supreme Court decided to apply a less strict 
um, criteria for deciding if governments or certain entities can restrict certain agencies, uh, like, like the Catholic Social Services Group in this case, from applying their religious belief if they're operating in the public square. The Supreme Court's decision on this new case in Philadelphia really could have a lot of religious liberty consequences for for Christian ministries, for adoption agencies, for other organizations. There is at least one other court, I believe in Michigan, that is holding off on making a, a decision in a similar case based on what the Supreme Court decides in this case here in Philadelphia. And of course, it's worth watching closely because of the relatively new Supreme Court justices who are going to be deciding this case, uh, people like Amy Coney Barrett or Neil Gorsuch or uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So there are a lot of implications, there are a lot of narratives tied up in this particular case. And so when the Supreme Court releases its ruling uh, later this year, uh, probably in June, it, it's going to be worth watching and, and parsing very closely. Yeah, I can certainly imagine that. I know world will be keeping an eye on it, and so will we here at Ministry Watch, because as you said, uh, it will have an impact on the way Christian ministries operate, or at least they could. Uh, you know, Michael, since we've opened up, so to speak, the Pandora's box of uh, political considerations, uh, let's talk briefly about the Georgia runoff race. As of now, and we're taping uh, this on a Wednesday morning, we know that Democrat Raphael Warnock has won one of the Senate seats in Georgia, but we don't yet know the outcome of the other, and that means that we don't yet know who will control the Senate. Yeah, that's right. There is so much up for up for grabs in this particular race, and yeah, as you and I are talking, uh, it, it looks like Warnock has has defeated Kelly Leffler in that race, but John Ossoff um, had a 0.4 percent lead over uh, the incumbent, David Perdue, in that race. And so if, if that margin stays below you know, 0.5 percentage points, uh, it looks like Perdue's probably going to move for a recount to try to, to try to get up to that. But um, again, this is another situation where there are so many kind of narratives tied up in, in what's going on here. I mean, Warnock is going to be the first black senator elected from Georgia. He's the first Democrat who is black elected as a senator from the South. People um, obviously remember that Tim Scott from South Carolina is a black senator in the South, but he is a Republican. Um, Warnock also is pastor of a, of a historic congregation, Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's the same congregation that Martin Luther King Jr. was pastor of during his lifetime. Uh, so you've got Georgia electing its first black senator. Uh, there. You also have um, John Ossoff, the Democrat, running against David Perdue. Uh, John Ossoff would be the youngest senator. He's 33 years old. He's been a congressional aide. He's, he's worked in journalism. Um, a lot of folks are, are making comments about the fact that you've got a state in the Deep South, Georgia, who has elected a black senator. And if Ossoff does indeed defeat David Perdue, Ossoff is Jewish, so you've got a, a Jewish senator from Georgia, you've got a black senator from Georgia, and it kind of turns narratives from 50, 60 years ago kind of on their head. But it's been such a, an interesting race to watch because of what's happened since November with President Trump and other Republicans claiming fraud and, and unequal treatment in, in that election. And, you know, it, it's playing out now where it looks like Democrats are going to um, – get up to Republicans count with 50 senators in that chamber. Well, yeah, and that brings up another couple of narratives. You were talking about so many narratives here. One is that if Ossoff does win, not only will, of course, it uh, take the Democrats to 50, but it will also mean they will control basically, um, you know, the House, the Senate, 
uh, and the White House. Uh, that is a really interesting uh, combination right there. We've never, we've had divided government for so long uh, in in Washington that it'll be um, interesting to see what happens whenever all whenever one party controls both the House, the Senate, and the White House. We are also hearing, even though we don't know the result of the Purdue Ossoff race, that that Trump is already starting to get some of the blame for uh, these losses in Georgia, that um, that his unwillingness to concede the election, that that every time he went to Georgia to campaign uh, for um, either Purdue or Leffler, he really made it um, a conversation about his own election, um, hurt the Republicans in Georgia. And I'm uh, so I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are, Michael, might be about some of these uh, additional narratives that maybe uh, nationalize this story a bit and how they shake out for the 2024 election. Sure. Well, I, I think, first of all, I mean, you're right. If things hold up as they appear right now and Democrats you know, effectively control the Senate. Again, the the count would be tied in terms of how senators vote, but uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote in the Senate effectively gives Democrats control of that body. They have, I believe, an eleven uh, seat advantage in the House of Republican or House of Representatives, rather. I'm sorry, over Republicans. Also, would have the White House. We would get away from this divided government framework we've been in for the last few years. At the same time, though, I mean, Democrats were expected to get huge gains, you know, polls and pundits and so forth. A lot of folks thought that Democrats would get huge gains in in the House of Representatives um, and that the Senate races wouldn't be as close as they are. Democrats didn't do that. So I think that for intents and purposes, that's not exactly a huge mandate to go do radical things that a lot of folks on the extreme left of Joe Biden's party are going to want him to do and want folks like Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer to do. We've already seen fissures and fractures in the Democratic Party. So I, I think the fact that the margins are what they are, I would think means that Democrats need to kind of stay away from some of the most extreme voices in their party on some of this stuff. On the other hand, it does mean uh, if Democrats do retain control of the Senate. It does mean that Joe Biden's cabinet nominees, his judicial appointments have a much, much smoother way through in the Senate. And as we've seen in Trump's presidency, that's not an insignificant thing. I mean, there still can be a whole lot done through that realm of government, also through the administrative state, um, which Trump utilized quite a bit. Barack Obama did too. So that's something to watch. Um, and yeah, and you hit on this other uh, I guess, storyline to watch over the next two or four years. And that is, you know, Trump came to Georgia the night before the runoffs. He he rallied in Dalton, Georgia. That county, Whitfield County, had, which is a pretty good Republican stronghold, let's say a red county, that county had uh, several percentage points less voter turnout than the rest of the state. It also had uh, several, I think it was 86% of the turnout it had in the November election. Um, and so one of the things that some folks have pointed out even this morning as we're recording this is the fact that Republican turnout just wasn't what it was expected. It wasn't what people thought it was going to be, especially compared to what happened in November. A political commentator that that we watch, Eric Erickson, who is there in Georgia, made, I think, a good point. And he said, I mean, a line from his commentary this morning, the Republican Party is going to have to find a way for a Trump and a non-Trump right of center coalition to survive. 
he pointed out that soccer moms in, in suburbia came out and voted for Leffler and Purdue, the Republicans, but other diehard Trump supporters in other more rural parts of the state did not do that. And so you're seeing right now Republicans having to come to grips with the fact that there are kind of two factions in the Republican Party, the same as there are two factions in the Democratic Party right now. And there are a lot of opportunities for um, splits and for things to go sideways for the Republican Party. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Michael, I'd like to pivot in our conversation and talk about another story that both World and Ministry Watch has covered, and that's the Ravi Zacharias controversy. Uh, Ravi Zacharias has been accused of sexual impropriety. I'm not going to itemize the details of those accusations here, except to say that they are severe, they're serious, they're credible accusations, and they're troubling accusations as well. So credible, in fact, that RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, hired a law firm to look into these allegations, and the law firm and RZIM released a statement on December 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve, saying as much, saying that those allegations uh, had merit. And, uh, you know, Michael, my first question is this. Does it cause you any concern uh, as a journalist that Ravi Zacharias International Ministries released this statement, as I said, the day before Christmas Eve, a day when reporters are kind of winding down for the holidays and the story was likely to not get a lot of play. In other words, do you think they were intentionally trying to bury the story? I think that's a good question, Warren. Um, I, I really have kind of a mixed take on this. Um, as you said, the the statement came out from RZIM on December 23rd. That was the day. I mean, I, I was with my family, my parents and siblings and my wife and kids. We were we were cooking, you know, getting ready for Christmas in the kitchen when when that dropped. And we uh, did get a story out by early the next morning on Christmas Eve morning from our senior reporter, Emily Bells, who's followed this story for the last several months. But as you say, that's a that's a kind of a difficult time to, to try to get on a story like that. In Washington, there's what's known as the Friday news dump, where if some big negative story is going to hit in Washington, D.C., folks there know that if they dump that story at about 4, 4.30, 5 p.m. on a Friday, a lot of reporters have knocked off for the weekend and they're out. You know, they, their weekend has begun. And so those stories probably are going to fall through the cracks more. That's a little bit of what this felt like, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know. I don't want to impugn anybody's motives on this at RZIM or elsewhere, but it did have that sort of a feel to it for sure. On the other hand, and, and Emily and I talked about this some when we were talking about this as she was reporting the story and I was editing it, um, it is encouraging the fact that RZIM has stated publicly that whatever the findings are of um, the law firm investigating these these allegations, um, and from their statements, it looks like there are there are worse things to come than even what's been reported so far, which which is not fun. But um, RZIM has said they've committed publicly to releasing those findings. They're not going to edit. They're not going to hold back on what those findings are. So we hope and pray that that transparency holds through. Um, a lot of organizations don't do that sort of a thing. A lot of organizations want to hold something back or at least not commit to something like that publicly on the front end. So in one sense, it's it's discouraging with the timing of this. In another sense, we really do hope that RZIM, for the sake of the work that that group is doing for the sake of their employees, for the sake of the victims here who have suffered because of uh, Ravi Zacharias's actions, and also for the sake of you know the good work that can be done through the organization, hopefully, um, God willing, 
we hope that they stick to that transparency, that commitment that they've that they've made publicly now to to release whatever comes that they will release in full unedited. Yeah, well, you know, Michael, of course I agree with you on everything that you said that I, you know, that we hope that they'll be forthcoming and and you know, want to respect and appreciate the fact that they have released what they've released so far. But I got to tell you, uh I'm got I've got to I'm going to take a slightly harder line maybe than you did just now um and say that Emily Bells at World did some fantastic reporting on the story. She has done uh, great reporting. Christianity Today, Ministry Watch, The Roy's Report, they've all done great reporting. And I got to tell you, and I think Emily would probably back me up in this, that RZIM has resisted at every step of the way. They have they have gotten around to acknowledging what was irrefutable, but they never, uh, without being forced to be forthcoming have been forthcoming, at least so far. Um, RZIM still does not release its Form 990s to the public, so we really don't know who's on the board. Um, that's where we would find a list of all of its board members. Uh, we don't know what the salaries of the senior executives are. We know that Ravi's daughter, uh, Ravi Zacharias's daughter, is in senior leadership there. So uh, I got to tell you, I, I am hopeful, and of course I agree with you that um, the ministry has done great work over the years and that this is a moment, an opportunity for them to come clean. Uh, but um, I think they've got some really serious steps to take in addition to releasing this report. I think that that uh, many, if not most, if not all of the board members should resign or at least consider resignation. I think they should start releasing their Form 990s. Um, I just think they've, I hope that they'll do the work that they need to do, but I'm also very aware that in my view, they've got a lot of work still to do. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I don't disagree with you on those things, Warren. I think, I mean, look, we're in the business of journalism for a reason, right? We believe in holding groups, individuals, uh, organizations accountable. And the transparency that something as simple as releasing a Form 990 affords, um, Releasing a Form 990 doesn't absolve whatever problems there are in an organization, obviously, but it's at least something. And to your point, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has, I mean, you said it perfectly, they've had to be forced into the situations they've been forced into to to get the independent investigation in the first place. That came after the stories and Christianity Today and, and, and Emily's reporting for us at World and Julie Roy's pushing earlier accusations, too, from Lorianne Thompson, which, again, I don't want to get into the details right now on this podcast, but there's been a lot of pressure applied. And one of the other things that's kind of troubling about how all this has played out over the last several years is the fact that one of the, you know, the the first thing that set off questions about uh, RZIM, about Robbie Zacharias personally, was uh, the accusation from Lorianne Thompson that she had been engaging with him. He had engaged with her, really, on an inappropriate relationship. It was sexual in nature. Um, all that looks through the work of Julie Royce and a couple others, all that looks to be substantiated, right? All that looks to be um, really what occurred. And one of the things that's really disconcerting is the fact that RZIM and Robbie Zacharias went after her so hard and her husband so hard with a lawsuit and, you know, attack their characters, saying they're just out trying to exploit him and the ministry. I mean, those are the sorts of things that I think, for good reason, give journalists, you and Emily and uh, Julie, others, folks Christianity Today, uh, Daniel Silliman, who's done really good reporting on this for CT, those are the things that give us 
skepticism about how RZIM is going to operate and, you know, the reforms you've mentioned, releasing 990s, cleaning house on the board, a lot of times that that gets at the root of a lot of issues. Um, I, I don't disagree with you on any of those things. I think there's still, the jury's still out on a lot of these things. Well, that's exactly right. And um, we'll be watching and uh, applaud these early first steps, of course. Uh, Michael, we've got to take a short break, but when we return, I want to take a look at the changing media landscape, uh, especially on the right side of the political spectrum and a story um, by World's Culture Editor, Megan Basham, that sort of unpacks some of this. I'm Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast, and we'll have more in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith with my guest this week, Michael Renault. Michael, uh, I think you know that I'm a fan of Megan Basham. Uh, she wrote an interesting story a few weeks ago about the decline of Fox News and the rise of alternative media. And I guess in some ways you could say uh, that you and I fit into that alternative media landscape even. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we definitely have a different take on news than what you're going to find at Fox or CNN or MSNBC or certainly from Washington Post, the New York Times. But yeah, what, what set this off, when Fox News called the swing state of Arizona early for Joe Biden on November 3rd, and you'll recall, Warren, they, they called that uh, that state for Biden on election night that night, got a lot of people upset, including Donald Trump himself. Um, and I think that's really when, as Megan kind of has reported too, that's when smaller conservative media outlets uh, kind of smell blood in the water, if you want to put it that way. Um, One America News Network, a cable channel, Newsmax, uh, The Daily Wire, they've all been particularly successful in the weeks since that election night in getting conservatives to migrate to those outlets from places like Fox News. Yeah, in fact, uh, Newsmax CEO Chris Ruddy outlined openly his company's strategy to kind of bring down Fox News by actively courting disaffected Trump voters. Yeah, that's right. And and Fox has really had the conservative cable news audience mostly to itself for, you know, almost 20 years now um, that have had you know, bigger and bigger ratings wins in a lot of their programming. But Newsmax kind of shocked industry experts when one of its programs actually beat Fox's primetime show, The Story with Martha McCollum, and the ratings among viewers ages 25 to 54, and that was on December 7th. Um, the Guardian newspaper reported that Fox's favorability among GOP supporters actually dropped 13 points in the two weeks 
after election night. Yeah, and of course, that trend has continued. I've seen some more recent ratings that says that uh, uh, a lot of the Fox shows are kind of dropping out of the um, you know top spots. But, but Michael, I'm, I'm wondering what you think of this trend. It seems to me that none of these organizations, and I would even probably include Fox News in that um, category, does a lot of what I would call real reporting, boots on the ground where they're actually sending reporters into the field and and trying to, you know, ascertain the truth. Um, I see a lot of commentary and punditry. Am I making this up? What's your take on that? No, I don't think you are at all, Warren. I think you're you're exactly right. I mean, one of the things that's happened with cable news, and, and this is before we get into One America News or Newsmax or operations like that. One of the things that's happened with cable news over the years is you know, cable news before the advent of CNN. I mean, you had your your evening news, your national evening news. You had your local news, and they were you know half an hour chunks of time that network anchors or if they had guests on or if they had reporters out in the field. I mean, a much a much smaller chunk of time to fill. Now, after CNN and then Fox News, MSNBC, CNBC, all these other networks. You've got 24-hour news cycles that I think really does, frankly, um, a lot of damage. You've got a lot of hours to fill. And besides just the time element, I mean, we're society in general right now, I think, is becoming more gimme, 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 what I want, what I want, right when I want it. Um, I mean, if I am having a conversation and I don't know something, all I have to do is whip out my phone and Google it or put it into whatever search engine, and I have information at my fingertips right away. We can order DoorDash and get dinner delivered to us in half an hour from whatever restaurant in town we want without without ever leaving our homes. And I think our news-consuming habits um, have fallen in line with this, so much so that we we want that immediate gratification, but we also want that feeling of belonging, being with my tribe, listening to my tribe. And that's, I mean, if we cut down to it, that's not the job of true journalism, right? That's not the job of reporters and editors, or at least it ought not be their job, just to give readers or listeners or viewers red meat on on things like this. So I do think it is a, is a problem. And in fact, actually, ironically, in today's Wall Street Journal, um, Senator Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, wrote an op-ed that I think is, is, is excellent. He's got a lot of quotable lines in it. But I, just to point out something that he writes um, in this op-ed about this very phenomenon, and he's, he's speaking in the context of Republicans challenging the electoral college tallies in Congress today as we're speaking. Um, but Ben Sass wrote, the same algorithms that know our favorite bands and when we need a shampoo refill are now curating our news feeds. The media ratchets up the rhetoric to increase clicks, eyeballs, and revenue. News consumers reward outlets for hot takes and for reinforcing their pre-existing opinions. It's a civics wasteland. Um, yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. Well, I think it really does. And uh, I'm, uh, one of the reasons I'm a fan of Ben Sass, but that's a subject for another day. I, I, you know, Michael, while I agree with you that I think the vast majority of these trends are negative, I, I do want to at least uh, mention one some, one thing that I think um, is potentially positive. And I think that um, some of these alternative news uh, organizations do take religion seriously. Uh, they are at least giving it a more prominent display. I don't know if they're actually taking it seriously themselves, uh, but do you think that that might also be um, one factor in their success? Absolutely. And and I should I should walk back too and say my comments a few minutes ago. It's not that's not me trying to defend some of the legacy media and, you know, quote unquote mainstream 
media outlets that have existed because they have so badly missed the boat on so many things. And, you know, if people want to criticize, which I, I mean, I, I will, One American News or Newsmax or outfits like that for being um, so much in the in the back pocket of Donald of Donald Trump and and um, supporters like that, you know, people have coined a phrase Trump derangement syndrome. I think um, the same applies on the other side too, right? Legacy media, the Times, the Post, other media outlets are infected with the same Trump derangement syndrome that I think is extremely unfortunate and it has some, you know, pretty long lasting damage, I think. Um, but they do it from the other side of the coin. And so I just, uh, none of what I said, I, you know, do I want to be misconstrued as me defending some of those other media outlets? Because I think both ends of that spectrum have some issues. But to get to your point about religion, I, I think you're exactly right, um, Warren. And that's, I mean, again, that's why you do what you do. It's why we do what we do at World, because we don't want to ignore this facet of human experience and ignore this facet of reality, frankly, that all this didn't just pop up from nothing. Um, but, I mean, one of the things to point out in recent months, um, the Daily Wire, which has become one of those popular online sites, they, they've run commentaries from um, John MacArthur, the California megachurch pastor, uh, Christian actor Kirk Cameron um, on The Blaze, Glenn Beck at times has opened up with um, spiritual rhetoric calling the nation to repentance for sinning. Uh, another Blaze podcast host, um, Steve Deese, has carved out a segment each week for theological questions and intersections there with politics and everyday life. Um, and he's open about his faith in in Jesus and his own failings. The Daily Wire co-founder, Ben Shapiro, he you know discusses fairly often his devout Judaism and how it shapes his ideology. So I, I do think you're right. One of the keys here, and if you read Megan's story from earlier this month on this, one of the keys here is they're not ignoring religion. They're not ignoring the religious faith of, of people who are drawn to their outlets. Yeah, that's right. And and by the way, while we're sitting here praising Megan Basham, I uh, want to commend um, to our listeners Megan's review of the Netflix limited series, The Queen's Gambit. I want to say that this has nothing to do with Christian ministries or politics or anything that we're talking about today, but um, that program has become something of a cultural phenomenon. And Megan teases out some of the reasons why, including the show's celebration of community and even its acknowledgement of religion as the glue uh, that holds culture together. I'll have a link to Megan's review uh, and also to Megan's article on the media in today's um, uh, show notes. Michael, uh, just a real quick lightning round as we sort of bring our time together to a close of recent stories that have been in World Magazine. One of them is perhaps my favorite feature of the year in World Magazine, and that's saying a lot because I like a lot of what you guys do at World, but that's your year-end obituaries. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Warren. Um, Susan Alasky compiled that list this year. She's done that for the last couple of years. She took over for Ed Plowman, who for decades did that list for World. And he passed away in 2018, and his obituary was included in, in that year's list of notable deaths. But this year's list from Susan included folks like theologian J.I. Packer, uh, Senator Tom Coburn, 
um, a pro-life warrior from Oklahoma, a senator from that state. Yeah, it's really a great list, and it reminds us that not only is life short, but that the things we do here can really make a difference. I, I actually find that list of obituaries in the world really exciting and challenging. You know, Michael, unfortunately with that, we've got to bring our time together to an end. Uh, to find out more about World Magazine uh, and the stories that we discussed today, you can go to the World News Group website, WNG.org. To find out more about Ministry Watch, you can go, of course, to ministrywatch.com. A couple of quick housekeeping items uh, before we go. Uh, if you like the program, we would be grateful if you would rate us on your podcast app. The more ratings we have, the more likely it is that this program will be picked up by search engines, and it helps us. It doesn't take but a few seconds, and it doesn't cost you a dime. If you do want to invest a dime or two, please know that both World Magazine and Ministry Watch are donor-supported. You can uh, go to our respective websites, wng.org or ministrywatch.com, and you'll be able to find a donate button on the front page of both of our sites. I also wanted to just mention here as we begin the new year that both World Magazine and Ministry Watch um, met our year-end fundraising goals, and we are so grateful to you, our listeners, and those of you that might have uh, made a financial contribution in 2020. Thank you. We do what we do because you do what you do. And one final note, Ministry Watch is doing a free online webinar next Friday on how to find and evaluate senior leadership talent for your church or ministry. My guest for this webinar will be executive search guru Bruce Dingman. Uh, We'll be uh, promoting this webinar in our daily email, so check your inbox for details. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. Thanks to Steve West and Megan Basham at World for providing material for our conversation today. I'm Warren Smith, along with my guest on today's program, World's Editor, Michael Renault, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.